Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Chatting today with cinematographer Yuli Steiger, ASC, traveling back in time to reminisce about his adventure 28 years ago shooting the crime drama The Hot Spot for director Dennis Hopper. Yuli, thanks a lot for joining us today on the American Cinematographer Podcast. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. And as noted, our subject is Dennis Hopper's uh, very interesting film, um, which I, I guess you shot around 1990 for him, as I understand it. Uh, and then, as I understand, about four years later, you shot a, the, what I believe is the last full-length feature that Dennis Hopper ever directed, a comedy called Chasers. And I think that makes you the only cinematographer other than the legendary Laszlo Kovacs to uh, shoot for Dennis Hopper as a director more than once during what was a relatively short um, film directing career. So to start, you know, I was just curious how the collaboration came about, how you met Dennis Hopper, how did it work out that he asked you to shoot Hotspot? It was the weirdest thing. At the time, I only had done two movies and two small movies, one in, uh, called Some Girls and the other one called uh, Promised Land, which I only shot half of it because I took over um, that movie and that was my first American credit as a director of photography <laughs> uh, with Michael Hoffman directing and then Michael did his second movie that I could then start from the beginning because now I had already a credit which was Some Girls and um, I was always went back to Switzerland of course working as an assistant actually because I could because I could downgrade in another country and, and live mm-hmm. you know, I was still very young fresh relatively freshly out of film I think I was around 32 or something and uh Prepping another film with Michael that fell apart, went back to Switzerland and got a phone call from my then new agent. I just got an agent, Sandra Marsh, and she called me and says, Dennis Hopper wants to meet me. And uh, I was in Switzerland, in Zurich, I remember exactly, in my apartment, it's Friday night, and I basically fainted. <laughs> Dennis was at the time a real hero of mine, and he was a big star then. I mean, he just did the film Colors, which was very successful. It was the first movie which brought him back, made money after, you know, his earlier life career. You know, he's, I mean, he was such a trendset. So I said, shit, what, uh, you know, I went to my best friend, she gave me like rescue remedy and said, you go there, you just look into his face, you know, and I stepped on a plane next day on a Saturday, arrived, slept on the on, on a, the couch of my friend Eugenio Sanetti, production designer, and uh, next day I had only four numbers, which I, and, and an address, which I had to press into the entry key thing because I had to go to Venice and to a very gang-invested area, mm. and um, pressed these four buttons and it rang a bell and then it opened. It was the most extraordinary half hour. It was a half hour meeting. I just basically stared into his face. <laughs> we didn't talk about the movie as well, at all. I had the script, was was at uh, Eugenio Sanetti's house, I read it overnight. We only talked about Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> so he had seen this film, Some Girls, um, which had a very young 16-year-old Jennifer Connelly in it, and um, he completely fell for her. 
It was amazing. It was a film that not many people had seen, but that at the time there was a, uh, was a writer for the LA Times called Sheila Benson, and she loved that film at Sundance, and uh, it was had in LA an incredible review and uh, a long run in, small, in a small theatre, but like for three months. Dennis obviously saw it, quite a lot of people saw it there. And um, so he just wanted to know everything about Jennifer Connolly. And we talk about art and Jennifer Connolly. And I left and said, like, wow, now I can go home and say, I talked to Dennis Hopper. Went back to my friend Eugenio and the phone rang. And Paul Lewis, producer, calls and said, for this shoot, for the opening sequence in uh, El Centro, what camera equipment do you think we will need? And so I said, like, well, it's, it's MOS. I think we can take a... You could shoot that with a 435, and you know, so on. And then I hung up and said, like, hey, holy shit, why does he ask me this question? And uh, then I get a call from my agent and said, like, <laughs> don't talk to anybody, man. We have to, we have to, I have to talk to production. They actually think of maybe hiring you. So, uh, yeah, so it happened really. And I did this pre shoot, which is the title sequence of the film, in El Centro. We you know, I, I had like three days of prep with Dennis, where we basically looked at art and went to visit all his friends in Venice. We didn't really talk about the movie at all. We went, we went with the charter, the whole crew. I had a very new crew as well myself, which I, people that I selected for a movie, this, Dennis, uh, this uh, Michael Hoffman film that didn't happen. Jim Gurch, Gaffer, Nate Goodman, Focus Puller, he was as first time, he just moved, I think, up as well. Um, we had a second assistant called Joe Sanchez, which is now my business partner, and uh, I've worked with Joe for 30 years nearly, all together with a few breaks in between. So we all flew in a charter to El Centro, I remember an early morning, and Dennis Hopper, and, uh, Dennis Hopper was there, and... Um, Don Johnson had this, it was this drifter in the desert, that was the scene. Don's the star of the film. Don Johnson is the star of the film. Don Johnson, Virginia Madsen is only met later in the movie. So I didn't know who Don Johnson was. I've never seen Miami Vice. <laughs> I didn't, I, you know, I was like so fresh. It was like uh, amazing, you know, so... So he was a drifter going through the desert. So I had this idea, okay, it's going to be very hot. It's called the hot spot. So how do I do that? And I took, uh, I filtered on the ca in the camera with uh, coral filters. I said, okay, I just start and do it. A very extreme look. Um, I didn't discuss that with Dennis at all. I don't know how I had the hot spot. I mean, I, I, I just thought that would be the way. And then when if, if I would be further on the movie, then at one point we would we'd go on and do this warmth in the lab. That was my sort of rationale then. We designed all these shots I wanted to do, you know, travel, tracking shots, everything should move, but never with the subject, with the car moving. So it was all this kind of ominous moving camera and, and this beautiful Studebaker, black Studebaker that um, Don Johnson's driving drives through the, through the, frame and it was all rather enigmatic and that was the idea which of course that was discussed with Dennis but um, he didn't really scout I actually went a day before and uh, I, I had a scout day um, so I think we shot like for one day only for that opening sequence and there was a helicopter shot in as well 
okay, we shot that the film cut in the lab. I had to go back to Switzerland because I had to get a work permit because I didn't have work permit or anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, and they had a hiatus. The film was going to be shot actually in Austin, Texas, also based in Austin, Texas. So I flew back to Switzerland and thought, well, that was it. I mean, now they they tried me out and, uh, you know, and I told Dennis, you know, call me when you see the dailies. Uh, so I get a phone call in June and say, man, it looks great. You know, I said, shit, I'm not fired. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and literally I got the, this work permit and uh, flew actually to Austin, where we then prepped. We had about three, three weeks prep there. And together with Jim Gert, my gaffer, we decided sort of the had all these ideas about color. It's a very colorful movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, if I now look back, I don't know. But, I mean, it, it, it actually, I think it looks really great, the whole film. And it's like, I don't know how I did it. I wanted to, to figure out this whole story of sort of meeting Dennis and then getting hired and not fully comprehending that you actually were hired um, and, and that sort of a thing. I, I think the American Cinematographer article at the time referred to you as, a, a quote, a newcomer. Um, and here you are, you're, you're meeting Dennis Hopper and you're having some nice conversations. You're not really, no one's ever saying, hey, you're hired too early on, you know, and then you're getting into it and he's not necessarily talking to you about each of these aspects of, of what you should or should not be doing, color, etc. You know, what was, did you feel like a newcomer? Did you feel like a stranger in a strange land or, or you know, was it like, okay, this guy trusts me, I'm just going to go for it and we don't have to talk about those things? I, I did, of course, I did lose, feel like a newcomer, but on the other hand, I just, you know, basically I said like, like my Swiss friend Ruth, you know, she told me, you know, just do it. And I said, yeah, right. I mean, I just told myself, Uli, just do what you can. And I didn't really look left or right. And I knew, I didn't know about politics much, but I was actually really welcomed, which was an incredibly great experience. Um, first, during prep, you know, production, actually the controller, Julie Jones, she came to me and said, Uli, just you know. We are here for you. You were chosen and we support you. We, the office, and everybody, we are your support. Because I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know how it works here. And uh, that gave me a lot of, you know, strength. And as well, Dennis, well, then we started shooting. And we started with the first scene is like when um, when uh, Don Johnson drives into this town and it's on, onto this parking lot and uh, sees... Uh, Molly, the um, uh, the Virginia Madsen character, she she drives in in a Cadillac, and we all it was sort of this moving tracking shot, and um, you know Don. <laughs> first thing he said, like, um, have you ever heard of silks? <laughs> and I said yes. <laughs> and he looked to the sun and said, like, well, it's called the hotspot. We have to write the sun, you know, because I I wanted to have it very hard. I mean, we were shooting on. At the then very new 50 ASA Daylight Kodak film, which has incredibly strong colors and is, is, is a, it's a wonderful, wonderful film and uh, has a latitude, but it's hard, you know. So, so I thought, now, well, I'm being fired now because, you know, the star wants his own Miami Vice people. I mean, he was... I'd never seen anything like that before. I mean, a star like that. He had his own helicopter bringing him to set. He had an entourage of 16 people. He was like, 
the king, you know, he had a car of his liking, liking who would bring him from the helicopter wherever that could land to the set. Of course, he chose something that you cannot rent, so production had to buy it. And Dennis didn't get on with him at all. So I made sure early on, because I know, knew that communication with Dennis was a key thing and it was a very tough thing. I made very sure that the first AD and I would drive to the set wherever we go as Eldering Scouts together with Dennis. So I drove to the set with Dennis every morning. We were in Austin and we were driving uh, to uh, Taylor, Texas, which was about a 45-minute drive every morning. And this was sort of the time when I had a chance to maybe know what the day was going to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we did, of course, we scouted and everything. So that, that day with... <laughs> When Don told me, you know, do you know anything about silks? And basically, he was, he, I know he wanted me gone. Dennis in the car, back, said, Uli, don't ever let that fucker talk to you like that. You're my cameraman. <laughs> you know? So I saw that guy, I had his back. Because I honestly didn't know. I knew, you know. And then, in one week, we were like three days behind. We were very slow. So I thought, you know, completion bond is going to come in. I'm going to be fired, or the first AD is going to be fired, so it's always one of them, you know. And then as well, in the car, the second week on the Monday, Dennis said, I fucked up so badly. This is the most expensive film I've ever done, and I'm nearly a week behind, you know. So I, again, knew that he wasn't blaming it on any of us, because it was him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because we were all whirling. I learned how to communicate with him, I realized very early on that you cannot really... I had to do it visually, so I had... On the camera, I always had video on, and then he had... We transmitted to his trailer where he was, and he had a driver, which had been working always with Satya. You know, he was the driver of his, of his uh, big rig, and, um, you know, Dennis would nothing, do nothing without Satya. So Satya would come out to the and say, man, he's watching the monitor, you know? So I, we, would, uh, we would do a quick second team rehearsal. I mean, really, either handheld or the dolly, shoving the dolly over the gravel, or, you know, just... And, and the, I would hear out of the trailer, you know, that's great, let's shoot it. So, I mean, like, I could put you know, rails down and we could, you know, do the shot. And, uh, you know, Paul Lewis, the producer, said, can't do that, you cannot portray it, Dennis doesn't like tracking, he doesn't like, you know, he wants everything on Steadicam, we had Paul Landgard as Steadicam operator there, which I thought was unbelievable, I had a Steadicam operator at all time, you know, like, expensive, expensive, I couldn't, you know, and, and um, Landgard was actually, in the end, not hardly ever used, because, I mean, whenever we figured out that we could do it on a, on a track, we did it, we did, you know, the shots on a track like we did, and it was, it worked really well, if I could show him on video what we are going to do. It was very funny. Every morning we had, we were rehearsing, of course. And I learned so much from Dennis. I mean, he was incredible with the actors. And what he got out of Don Johnson is unbelievable. Well, I wanted to ask you about Dennis, the director. I mean, you worked with him again in another film. And then that was pretty much it for his directing career. You know, did you ever get a chance to... Uh, Talk to him uh, or ponder, you know, why isn't he directing more? I mean, he broke out with something like Easy Rider, which, you know, most guys can direct a hundred films and never do that. Um, you know, what was your he take on, uh, on why he couldn't be a more prolific director? 
but he really wanted to do more movies. He came, you know, with several projects to me after that as well, after Chasers. But Chasers really, really kind of killed him uh, directing-wise because he wanted to do with Chasers a very uh, a film that would make money. It was a comedy, and the rock was really pulled from under him there. They fired Paul Lewis on him, which is halfway through the movie, you know, after, yeah, halfway through the movie. And he became, because Paul was did everything since he's a writer with, with Dennis. And Dennis is Dennis Hopper. I mean, he's not a normal director. He's like, he's, he's crazy. He's an, an old drug addict who is off drugs but still trips. He was like, I mean, that he was still alive was a miracle. I mean, he told me stories you would not believe. I mean, he hung out with all these, you know, from Bob Dylan to I don't know what. So Dennis had an incredible past, and you had to figure out a way to get him, get his attention, because you could as well very easily lose it again, mm -hmm. you know. So when you had him, when you had him for that one thirty seconds, he was very intense, and he was there, and it was all good. So you had to find these moments. And for some reason, I managed to do that. I, I figured it out. And because I was asking myself, of course, during the whole film and, and later, why did Dennis Hopper hire me? He could have absolutely everybody. Haskell Wexler shot colors. He did like, you know, he chose me. I mean, he, he chose me like he chose other people in his earlier career who were, I don't know, like he found, I don't know, interestingly enough, a lot of architect his house then uh, mm -hmm. artist he has the most incredible incredible art collection it was it was it was very odd and I got his attention because he was had it well he saw this film some girls with Jennifer Connolly you know for those who haven't seen it or or uh, you know saw it very long time ago since it came out in 1990 um, you know it's one of those dusty sort of film film noir pieces it's based on a a 1950s era's era book called Hell Hath No Fury. It's about a, a drifter uh, in the American Southwest, played by Johnson, um, who I guess he's lining up. He lines up a bank robbery, and he gets entangled with these two very different uh, and sexy women in in, in uh, Virginia Madsen and Jennifer Connelly, as you referenced, um, and that causes him all sorts of complications. I've heard people say maybe it has a flavor of, of like... Um, you know, a postman always rings twice, or some da some of David Lynch's work. Um, you know, when you walked in, and it, it wasn't a very verbal. Let's break it down and study storyboards for six months. It wasn't one of those kinds of things. You know, um, what was the mission statement he gave you, or did he sort of not give you one, and you figured it out through your interactions with him? You know, he didn't really give me a mission statement. Interestingly enough, I, I had a lot of discussions with my gaffer, Jim Gurch, you know, how do we go about it? How do we light, you know, once we are, this drifter arrives in, uh, in this town, which is Taylor, Texas in the movie, you know, he get, goes into a strip joint, there's, uh, strip joint is very important, it's the hot spot in town. So how do we go about lighting that? That how do we how do we go about this car uh, rental, uh, this car uh, sales place, which is the key set where um, it's where he worked. That's where he worked, where he drives in and gets a job. 
which was a, constructed as a bubble, basically all glass all around, with an other second office, which was the world of Jennifer Connolly. Um, and this was as well brilliant Dennis Hopper. You know, he had he had a Coca Cola sign, so and, and um, he had this Amarillo sign, and I mean the signage, it's, everything was very very um, art directed. So this main set was day and night, and it was had to have pro, you know project this whole town that was like basically abandoned. The, uh, we had this beautiful woman that, our, uh, that the owner married, Virginia Matson. And Jennifer Connolly was the girl that Don Johnson was attracted to. Uh, so these two women were constantly present. So in the, in the, in the parking uh, car sales place, Jennifer Connolly was there through, through two windows and through blinds. You saw her, and then you saw Molly, the wife, which, wanted to, which is in train of the, you know, seducing Don Johnson. She's there, so you always had the two women there. In the morning, we would go and rehearse, and I would give him my director's viewfinder, you know, and um, he would go, and then we go here, and then we go here, and then he walked around, and then we do this <laughs> and that, and he looked to the front and to the back of the, uh, the viewfinder, and I never knew, is he now the actor, is he the director, or he was like... And then I would go with... Um, the script supervisor, Marie de Grabiak. Without her, I could have not done this movie. Yeah. And we would discuss how, shall we, how, how many shots do we, what do we need, really need? How do mm. we do the master? The master can work till here, and then we need coverage here, and, and I think we need a close-up here and there. And she would say, like, okay, okay, right. And then she would go to Dennis. Dennis, after the master, we need a reverse here, and we need that. And Dennis would say, yes. Because she was so deadpan and straight, he couldn't say no to her. And so that really worked because sometimes we, he always wanted to jump the line. He took the reverse masters, you know, the worst thing because then you end up having to shoot twice as many shots. And we could most of the time avert this by sort of, you know, in a, in a weird way manipulating him into this. Or, you know, I, I learned a lot from that movie as well that you have to sometimes manipulate, that my job is to manipulate. I mean, example. We're on the, on the scout, on the tech scout, and it's the house of Jennifer Connolly's house. And there's a scene where Don Johnson comes and picks her up. And it's in this nice street, suburban street, all, you know, this whole Taylor, Texas town that we show in the movie is like sort of a 30s weird old town, no, nothing modern. We don't, don't, we want to sort of see, show this kind of dying, you know, Texas little city. So, he always, and the scout looks in a way where down there is a new new building and a factory and whatever, some stuff, you know, there's like, it's, you're on, we have to shoot it the other way. So when Transpo asks me after the scout, where should they park, and where should they put breakfast, I said, I put breakfast there, you can, you can park, you, you can have all the trucks down that road. So when we arrive in the morning, we're in the car, and, and then he said, oh shit, oh shit, they put, they parked everything, and like we're having it all in our shop. And I said, well, maybe we have to just shoot the other way. Fuck, it's going to take us at least 45 minutes, you know, and let's shoot it that way. I think that way is great. You know? <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's what I mean. And it worked without being like too many or anything. Mm -hmm. And I could then just show him again. Because you referenced in the in the American Cinematographer article that 
there was a lot of nonverbal communication with, with you and Dennis. Is that what you meant, that you would just show him something? You would do what you thought was right, then show it to him? That's, for example, I always had a zoom lens on the... I, I shoot everything with zooms. And, and I, that, you know, we shot this with Panavision cameras because at the time the new uh, Prebo zooms were just out. And it was the first time you could really use Panavision really good zoom lenses. And I saw, I thought, this is great. So I don't need to change lenses. I have all the lenses in, you know, on the camera. And basically, there's one particular, uh, two, two lenses. I forget one is like was like 17 to 18. The other one was I don't know 25 to two nine to. It's it's similar to the what the now the optimal zooms are. I haven't, um, yeah. but these zooms were in just. You know, wonderful for that because I had the zoom and I could say, like, okay, so we, we pan here. And I was operating myself as well. We pan here and we're wide, and then and then we go in and we do it close up here, and then on the we go around, we go a little bit to the left, and then we let's zoom in, and, and that would be the close up of the reverse. And I could show him like that, and he got it immediately, even mm-hmm. if it was rough. And uh, so that helped a lot. And I mean, the whole, the whole shot, film was shot on. And of course, I, the other thing is, I always had help from my from my assistants and uh, Jim Gertz, my gaffer. We were like, ended up being like joined in the hip for ten years. We did everything together. So the hotspot was kind of uh, important to your career in terms of, of some of the team that you ended up Absolutely. putting together. Absolutely. I mean, I, I somehow chose really well. Mm-hmm. I always was lucky with, with my crew and. I'm nothing without my crew, you know, I really, and I mean that, I really mean that. And uh, yeah, Jim Gertz I worked with for a long time, uh, the, the only film then when I couldn't use him anymore was the film The Day After Tomorrow, which we shot in Canada, in, in Montreal, in Roland. Roland Emmerich. Roland Emmerich. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's when I had to find a new gaffer. It was very hard. It's like a divorce, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and it was liberating for me too because I actually then knew, yes, I can work with other people as well. But it was like you know what I mean. It's uh, yeah. But that's all started at the hotspot, and um, it was it, it it was, I mean we we really did take big decisions with shedding lights and so on. I had uh, the idea that we would, you know, put this pink, in, introduce this pink color as well for, um, which was an idea which came in a way in that film, Promised Land, that I did before with Eugenio Sanetti as the production designer, who I actually quote as my, he basically was my uh, mentor for a long time, I did three films. And there we had, like, in Promised Land, McRyan had this kind of a dress that had a specific color and the car that had a pink tarp over it, and I thought that worked very well. So I wanted to, you know, I stole that from from our other movie and uh, ended up doing this at the night sequences in the, uh, in the car, in, in the car uh, sales place. We put in these... Um, fluorescent real street light fixtures and we gelled them pink and had like sort of that theme going we, we had pink gel, I forgot the name of the gel but uh, we added that to all the other gels you know we always we added one layer of pink to everything which sort of pulled it all a little bit together even 
even the very different colors. I mean, it was a very yellow night and a very blue darkness, you know, it was very colorful, but we always had a little bit pink. <laughs> you referenced earlier the, um, the uh, used car lot where he gets his job, uh, where a lot of the action takes place. Uh, and that it was sort of every office was glass and you could see out in the lot was glass and you're shooting in hard sunlight uh, a lot of the time uh, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and I think um, I read you called it uh, the fishbowl effect. And, um, you know, maybe you could elaborate what were some of the tricks to do that where, where you're not, um, you know, getting people in the shot who aren't supposed to be there and, you know, uh, where it's, you can sort of get you know, you have to grapple with reflections and flares and, you know, all, all of those issues. Um, I, I read that Dennis kind of had the idea, you know, how did you execute that, that idea? That seemed like a very complex place to shoot. It was very complex. And then the, the windows were not, most of the windows were not even gimbaled. So, um, this, you know, with a lot of help from Brian Reynolds, my key grip, which was as well my key grip for many, many years after that, um, you know, I forget to mention him. He was part of that team too. So we basically, I just said, like, let, let's just shoot and figure it out. And, you know, the reflections are shot by shot. You deal with them. And you always see the whole fucking crew. You always see everybody. Something, you know. You have put one light up, and since it was so bright outside, in, outside this bowl, uh, fish bowl, we had to have very big light sources inside um, uh, as well. And, one lamp and you see it reflected through through windows, through other windows, through other windows. So you had to figure out very be very creative with taking reflections away. But it somehow worked. You know, we shot up. Uh, I set up the shot and then we we dealt with the reflections, whatever it needed. And it come, somehow I don't know. I mean, it, it worked. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and it was as well a very difficult set because it was very hot because it was not a real set. It was actually a set. Of course, it didn't have air conditioning, and at, at that time, we didn't have these big air conditioning units you could just bring in. It was like, you know, 120 degrees in there, um, and the, the actors were exploding with sweat when, as soon as they stepped on the set. So we had to be fast. We had to be. I mean, like it was, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't easy, um, but it turned out really. I, I, I thought it really turned out good. But I mean, I told myself, look, you just push, it, it's always one shot after the other. You can't start to fret in advance too much because otherwise you don't dare to do things well the uh, i think you were quoted as, as saying uh, this movie was about uh, heat rather than beauty and maybe you can elaborate what that means you know how you illustrate heat visually through a camera um so it looks the way the you and the filmmaker had in mind uh, you know in your heads um you know i'm obviously make people sweat or whatever but uh you know how that was achieved and, and what exactly you me meant by that yeah, I mean, that's what I, of course, asked myself at the beginning. And one thing for heat is you see, like, heat waves, you know, long lens and heat waves. Uh, we did that in the opening sequence in El Centro, for example, uh, at the title, where the title comes up. We have these very long shots. But then, you know, you establish that this drifter is driving through basically the desert and he gets stranded in this town. Now, this town, for me, the heat was the sun, was just straight sun and warmness, warm color. I mean, uh, uh, the, and the difference between cool and warm. I think you only see warm when not everything is just warm, when there is some coolness in it as well. The shadows are not so warm. So, you know, um, 
and with the direct sunlight and the daylight film um, and coral filters which I put on I mean which I put on actually uh, until he goes into the strip joint Don Johnson for the first time in a movie I I used heavy coral filters and that's when I decided from the strip joint he comes out we do it in the lab because I I didn't want to do the whole movie with coral filters Um, because that's just you know one more filter you know it's uh, and you can do a lot in color timing. So, but that was a that was a decision. I, and I actually I never told Dennis that. And he only yelled at me really once when we had there is one sequence which is a sort of a dream remembering sequence. And Jennifer Connelly, she is being um, uh, there's this guy Sutton who blackmails her, and then she has sort of a there's a flashback. And on that flashback, I actually used a. Um, very strong thing. I used uh, a net behind the lens, just to a very extreme wide right? ten millimeter lens and the net behind the lens. So it was a very strong statement. And then, then he said, "Did you put a filter?" <laughs> like, yeah, I did. Uh, mm-hmm. You see, you know, I did. man, I never put filters in my movie. I never had a filter in any of my movies. You never put filters on my movies. <laughs> and I said, "Okay, oops." Uh, and, then, and I was glad that I tell him that I called the whole beginning of the movie, you know. Well, and, and this was the, uh, you know, obviously 1989. This is a pre-digital uh, yeah, media era. Completely digital everything. This is completely, absolutely all. You have no camera. LEDs, any of that. Nothing. Um, how, would you be able to get the same look that we all enjoy when it's uh, reproduced correctly? Uh, if you were shooting this movie today, would you be throwing LEDs in there? You know, how would that? Well, today I would, if, if I would shoot it digital like on Alexa, uh, you would have to really work with the color timer. Well, but you can. I mean, it's amazing what you can do now. You know, there we chose, it was choosing different film stocks. And today, with, I mean, especially the Alexa camera has like very similar color science like Kodak did. I mean, we owe everything to Kodak. I mean, Kodak in a hundred years, I mean, they improved this film and they made a film, a photochemical film that basically you expose it and it looks a little bit like what we see with our eyes. I mean, how did they get that, get there? You know, that we, the contrast is similar, that the color is really similar and this, uh, we can see some, we, we function so much, we humans function with color. I mean, color is what we, a dog smells uh, from a mile away, and we can see, it seems, billions of different colors. We, and we have a memory for color. So Kodak managed to, with their color scientists, to get to a place and got better and better in giving us this extraordinary film material where you just uh, expose, and you can even, you don't even have, you even can make mistakes, and they can, you can, I mean, don't tell that anybody, but I mean, you underexpose two stops and, you know, you're not yet fired because you can actually recover it. Yeah, with a good color time. And color timers then were, of course, like now, colorists are so very important. He said it's it's, 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 it's own little, it's a, a job, you know. I would never, I would never do my own color on a movie. I would never want to sit on a computer and do my, I, that's my partner is a colorist, whether it's now digital or where it used to be on. Dennis Hopper, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I thought that 
he didn't really talk to you a lot about uh, color that uh, he kind of left it to to you I mean he would say things like I don't like filters or what have you but he didn't sit down and say well here's the color palette or the aesthetic for the movie the entire movie or anything like that no he really didn't um, he really didn't I mean from the production design you know it was clear what colors we, we had we had colors we had the warmth and Dolly was like the uh, had this um, you know their clothes and there's, it, it was very designed but I mean how the nights looked and how this all worked um, we didn't really we did really discuss it but of course he watched stays and he never said anything so I mean there was one thing after the first week the producer Paul Lewis comes to me and says you know what something's wrong Dennis never yells at you he always yells at the DPs in Dennis he never did and then he hired me again for his next movie and then he came back for three other movies that then he always called me first and there was a night nice scene um, that I thought was quite uh, quite cool uh, where Don Johnson uh, is forced to have a rendezvous uh, with Virginia Madsen's character. I guess it's at an old mill or factory or something. And he's kind of chasing her up to the top and then going, jumping out of the bottom. And it's clear they're, one of them is going to kill the other or they're going to make love. And, and you're not sure for quite a while which. You know, but, but there was this sort of what a hot summer night would look like. But you could see them just fine. You know, what, what was the key to that one? We were on a, on a tower, you know, and, and we saw the world. And it was night, so I put, like, this big um, Moscow light. We had a Moscow light coming, which was then a huge deal, you know. To, and you can't move them, you know, because you have to decide days before where they go. They have to basically build a road into the, uh, you know, to drive that huge thing in and whatever. So I, I had put that in the backlight and then thought, like, okay, we shoot that way so it, it not in shot. And, you know, Jim Gurch and I had some had a plan. And um, up there we had a little uh, little sort of fill lights. And, and then the night came and we started to shoot. We did a big... Underneath the tower where they go up, she, she runs up, she teases him, and he follows her up on this hopper uh, tower. And... Um, once we were up there and started to shoot up there, uh, fog came in and covered our Moscow light. I mean, we didn't hardly get a light, any light out of, I mean, it was also, we said, like, what do we do? Do we go home? Do we go on? And then we reshot a couple of shots, but uh, in the end, I mean, that's what you were referring to, is was an accident. It was a fog bank who came in and uh, changed the whole, now I was shooting directly into the into that light, which was, going through the fog and mm -hmm. it made this whole actually really incredible it's an incredibly looking scene yeah. um, and you only can get that through accident I mean the help of whatever and then you use what I mean you can't plan that we've got to wind it down in a minute uh, running out of time but uh, you know I did want to ask you we were talking earlier about um, uh, when I came in uh, you know about uh, finding a copy of this movie and does it represent creatively the way you guys intended at the time you know i i saw it on a blu-ray um and you were commenting that this whole issue of, of, of remastering these or how they get transferred for new formats and redistributed is something of very big concern to the cinematography community generally uh, using this movie's example what have you discovered in terms of, of finding it you know at the right quality today and you know what are your hopes can be done for for that kind of an issue yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad that these films, I mean, The Hotspot is a good example. 
there is not really a good print around anymore it seems I mean I tried to do a screening uh, 10 years ago or so and there was a Dennis Hopper print around which he had he owned a print but it was very scratched and in very bad shape and I finally found one in the Cinematheque Swiss in, in Switzerland there they actually had a print which was okay but you couldn't find since the distributor doesn't exist anymore, Orion doesn't exist anymore, nobody knows where the rights are to this movie. It's like just a weird, somebody bought a library, I, who, I don't know. I mean, there is actually somebody who bought this Orion library, but you call them and they don't know. They just simply don't know. So where is the negative? They don't know. It's lost. And so there is a, there, there is a was a VHS, which was a, a decent VHS transfer, how they you did it 30 years ago. And, you know, but that's it was actually done in the wrong format. It was done full frame and not 166. The film is shot in 166. And so, and then I hear that Blu ray came out. So I thought, like, okay, great, of course, went and bought it and then looked at it. And it's very disappointing because the Blu ray is this format and so on, okay, but they timed all the extreme color out you know i mean they didn't they didn't ask anybody obviously nobody i mean i wasn't involved nobody was involved and it goes through a machine as cheap as possible or i don't know or people who don't know and they want to make it they they want to make it look you know normal the film wasn't normal <laughs> you know so actually the old vhs looks color wise a lot better it's not so bad, at least the film has still a life. I mean, you can see it, but it's a pity that you don't see it right. And I wish, of course, more film would be re films would be restored. Like now, quite a lot of films are being restored, which is great, which gives the film a completely new life if you have a digital version that is actually good, that is like 2K and it can be shown in a, or on a Blu-ray a good Blu-ray you can project in a cinema and it's really actually fine if you have a, and it makes but that costs money it's a complex long story you actually have to go to a, find a really good print and find a, the, ne the negatives that you have. I mean it's a long process so I hope that I hope that at one point somebody would do that but it's with many films like that from the 80s you know, other, other films that I've done this film some girls, which Dennis Hopper saw, because of which I was hired for the, for the hotspot, this film, Some Girls, is basically lost as well. It was an MGM movie, uh, MGM negative pickup at the time, and there is, there is a VHS, that's it. And, and uh, again, another, I think they made a DVD, which was basically the same uh, source material, and that's it. And it's Jennifer Connelly's, you know, she's an ingenue there. She's like 16. She looks great. Well, as we, we wrap up here, you know, is it safe to say the you know, the hotspot was, was an important project uh, for your career generally and for things that followed as opposed to if you'd never had this opportunity? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, no, it just empty a fair statement. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary possibility for me and I still don't, you know, I'm amazed that I got this chance. I mean, that I was chosen by Dennis and, you know, and he, I know that he chose well because somehow I could click with him but from my personal uh, 
career, of course, it was great because afterwards I did another film with Michael Hoffman, which was my first studio picture, and it really brought me here. And it, it was as well for me the first movie that I was chosen just because somebody saw another movie of mine, and I had no direct connections, not from you know. So it was very, very important milestone in my career. Well, I'm glad we had a chance today to look back on it and uh, want to thank you, Yuli Steiger, um, taking the time to chat with us on the American Cinematographer podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I did too. This has been the American Cinematographer podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.